You're listening to the Stories of Transformation podcast. I'm your host, Bakhtasha Hadi. In each episode, we will talk with some of the most inspiring and courageous individuals who share their unique stories about how they overcame hardships, learned their craft, and found their purpose. These conversations are meant to inform, entertain, and inspire. Okay, happy listening. Welcome to the Stories of Transformation podcast. My name is Bakhtasha Hadi. In this episode of Stories of Transformation, I'll be speaking with Zadlasht Halamzai. Zadlasht and her family fled their home of Afghanistan when she was 11 years old, leaving all their hopes and dreams for the future behind. Now she's the co-founder and executive director of Refugee Trauma Initiative. Refugee Trauma Initiative is an organization committed to resourcing refugees and aid workers with the skills and tools needed to deal with stress, insecurity, and trauma. When most people think about the refugee crisis or helping refugees, they think in terms of providing food, shelter, and security. While these things are important, in this conversation, Zadalash brings our attention to something equally as vital to refugees which is often overlooked. Connection, community, trust, and hope are just as basic as food and shelter when it comes to human needs. But displaced refugees lose all of this when they settle into their new reality. What set Zadalash down this path was when she would speak with her relatives. She reflects in this episode on how they were always experiencing physical pain. She began to wonder to herself, why is it that everyone around me is in such physical pain? What she learned is that if you don't have the language to express your feelings of the trauma you're experiencing, the pain will manifest in your body. Not to mention, research has found that children who experience traumatic situations without support in processing it also have mental and physical issues later on in life. She realized, refugees need a way of healing the trauma they've experienced in a healthy way in order to have any chance of rebuilding their lives. So Zadalasht and her team at Refugee Trauma Initiative help parents develop the skills to deal with the crisis they're in, as well as help them understand what their children are going through, and they foster a great sense of community. After hearing this conversation, you have a much greater understanding of the reality that refugees face, rather than the propaganda put forth by politicians as they try to avoid solving very complex issues in our world today. And as you listen to this conversation, just keep in the back of your mind that things that happen across the world affect us all. I share this conversation with you in the wake of the coronavirus epidemic. Things that happen in China are affecting the entire world, just as the wars that are happening in the greater Middle East are affecting us here in the West. I say this because we seriously have to consider the implications of our decisions, because we're all part of a network. We are noted in a network, and the decisions we make will affect people in ways that we cannot begin to imagine. And in this conversation with Zadlasht, she explains how we're all interconnected. So without further ado, it's my pleasure to introduce Zadlasht Halamzai. Zadlasht, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Thank you for inviting me. I'm well. I'm well. That's wonderful. You're welcome. Now, tell us uh, where you are right now. I am currently in very rainy London. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just got back from Greece to London, and uh, London did not disappoint with its weather. It's gray and gloomy and rainy. <laughs> so I am at my house in London at the moment. Well, welcome back to London. Now, um, Zadlash, can you please describe what it is that you do in your own words? I co-founded and I now run an organization called Refugee Trauma Initiative and our work is mainly with conflict affected populations that were forced to leave their homes. We work mostly in Greece at the moment so a lot of the communities that we serve come from places like um, Syria, Afghanistan, Iraq and other 
countries that have been in conflict for decades and decades. And so the when they arrive in, in Greece, and I don't know if you've been hearing the stories that are coming out of Greece at the moment, even though you know they come to European shores looking for safety and security at the moment and for the last few years, um, they arrive into another very difficult and potentially traumatic situation, having experienced violence, um, displacement, maybe they've lost a loved one. And for you know people from places like Afghanistan, this is something that they've been experiencing for the last 40 years. So it's not just destroyed their lives, it's destroyed the very fabric of society and the country. So they're dealing with a lot. They're dealing with these very difficult experiences. And what we do is try to create spaces where some of the healing that they need can begin. And so RTI's mission is to support refugee communities to heal, to reconnect with people around them. Uh, one of the things that happens to people that are displaced is that that connection to their community, to their extended family, sometimes to their immediate family, is severed. And that's an incredibly difficult thing to go through. And so a lot of work that we do is around community building and restoring that connection for these communities. Um, and it's also about connecting to yourself. Um, I think we deal with difficult experiences in so many different ways, but one of the ways is to dissociate, disconnect from yourself. And so we try and kind of help people reconnect with themselves in lots of different ways. We use mindfulness, we use um, different types of group-based work, we use movement, um, dance therapy. We work with really young children because that's when you're very vulnerable to the impact of stress and trauma to help mitigate against some of the risks and vulnerabilities that they're experiencing. Uh, this is remarkable work, and this is the reason why I want to have this conversation with you, because uh, this subject is near and dear to, to my heart, and I imagine it's near and dear to yours based on personal experience. And um, what I'm learning about trauma as I study this from a personal perspective is there's PTSD, right? So post-traumatic stress syndrome that, that refugees deal with when they're leaving when they're in a conflict zone, but then also in the context of them leaving a conflict zone in self-preservation to get it to a better place. And so what I'm learning now, could you shed light on this idea of what it means for children to be in a place of PTSD? Like how is it that your work is dealing with children who, who have a hard time kind of understand what the, what's going on in their minds, right? Like kids only know their, their notion of reality is very different from that of an adult. So how is it that you work with children specifically? Because there's some work out there right now that talks about, even in the context of Greece, instead of re referring to it as PTSD, right? So post-traumatic stress syndrome, they talk about it as human devastation syndrome, which I thought mm. to be really, really interesting. Have you heard of that? And how does that play into um, to the lives of children that you're dealing with? Sure. Um, children are incredibly vulnerable, particularly when they're young. So between mm. pregnancy and six years old, children are incredibly vulnerable to stress and to experiences of trauma. And there is a vast body of research that looks at the relationship between adverse childhood experiences 
to difficulties later on in life. And these difficulties includes mental health issues. So children who have adverse childhood experiences, which is called, you know, in short, it's called ACEs. Uh, there's a ton of research on this in the US. In fact, the current Surgeon General of California She's been one of the advocates for this, Nadine Burke-Harris. So the more ACEs you have, the more likely it is that you will experience difficulties in terms of your physical and mental health later on in life, sometimes uh, for the rest of your life. And it can also impact the way that you form and maintain relationships. It impacts your capacity to access the labor market and realize your potential. So the kind of the the impact of early stress and early trauma on children is incredibly complex and incredibly multifaceted. So the what we're learning from research at the moment is that if children are going through insecurity and trauma at that age, it quite literally changes the architecture of their brain. So the physical development of the brain is different or there's a significant difference. Um, and there's more research to suggest that it damages our immune system and potentially genes. So there's, there's no question that going through that sort of insecurity and trauma and toxic stress and what I mean by toxic stress is that you know human beings experience this stress that you can overcome is actually quite healthy you know we for example you know getting stressed before an exam can be a, a useful thing you know it, it motivates you you walk you and then you do you set your exam and and then it's over and your stress system calms down. What happens when the stress system is always on? It's, you know, continuously on and you're continuously producing the stress hormones and you continually feel threatened because there is this existential threat around you for children that are coming from places like Syria and Afghanistan, then it literally becomes toxic. It becomes toxic and it starts damaging you, essentially. So the work that we do with... Um, Young children, this is one of our focuses, early childhood, um, is to help parents develop skills to deal with the crisis that they're in. So a lot of parents, including mine, didn't really think, you know, when they were having kids, they didn't really think that they were going to bring up their children in the context of one of the most devastating wars and then displacement. So you're not really prepared for how to deal with family life. If you're living in a refugee camp, you don't really plan for that. Nobody plans for that. So a lot of the work that we do is helping parents develop those skills, helping reduce stress in them, helping them to understand you know, what their children are going through and creating safe spaces where parents and children can come together, play, play is an incredibly important part of childhood experience. And that's how we learn. That's how we... Um, make sense of the world when we're children. So what we do is create those spaces where children can come and play, can connect with their parents. Um, if you're living in a refugee camp at the moment in Greece, your only shield is your parent. Um, and so how parents deal with the children's reactions, how responsive they are to their needs, to how responsive they are, 
to what their children are expressing can make a massive difference to the child's development. So a lot of the work that we do is around creating capacity within the family to deal with the crisis and creating safe spaces where they can be respite from the stress that they're going through, where they can be opportunities to really connect as a family um, and the way they can have you know somewhere where they can still imagine a different type of future you know and mm-hmm. and, and kind of keep their hope that's really interesting so what's interesting is when people think about the refugee crisis or helping refugees it's mostly a matter of providing food shelter and security but what i'm hearing you say is that you're providing a service that is for the mind and the souls of the refugees right like you're 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 approaching them from from that perspective, which isn't what most people go to and what isn't what most people think about when they think about refugees, including the refugees themselves, correct? So this is one of the things I'm hoping to bring attention to is uh, through my work is to help all of us to recognize what refugees are experiencing, have experienced and are experiencing are incredibly devastating things. And it's really difficult to overcome those things. You know, it's really difficult. And you can provide food and shelter, but we're talking about millions and millions of families and children who, you know, with the possibility that their lives may be lost, not just through living in these horrible camps or actually being killed but even if they manage to make this extraordinarily difficult journey to somewhere where they think they're going to be saved or safe they may not ever be able to rebuild their lives and so Mm -hmm. you know if you've seen if you if you come from syria right now if you've spent the last years of your lives in this one of the most devastating conflicts that doesn't just go away and so if we want people to be able to rebuild their lives if they want if we want people to reclaim their lives this support is as vital as shelter you know so that they can reclaim something, something of their former lives. And if you do that, you know, one side of trauma is devastation and difficulty. The other side is that it can be incredibly transformative. It can elevate us to a place where we can connect to other human beings, develop our sense of empathy beyond what it would have been, develop compassion, all these different things. And I see that all the time in the communities that we work with. I see that in the Afghan community all the time. Afghans have been through so much and yet they're some of the most resilient, entrepreneurial, funny, compassionate people that I know. So it also has that power, but I really believe that that power comes from support. If there is support available, then the potential of trauma being transformative is much higher than if people were just left to deal with these things on their own. That's really insightful. So help us understand tactically, Zadalash, what that means. Like, How does it RTI facilitates this conversation? What does that look like? What are the questions that you ask? And after understanding that, like, what are the things that you've learned and your organization has learned from refugees that um, that's something new that you know you didn't know before starting that's such a difficult question because there's so many things that I didn't know before I started doing this work that it's very difficult for me to give you a mm. list um, a lot of what we do so in terms of our practices we try and create spaces where some of these conversations can happen so within the refugee communities that we serve, we try and create spaces where mothers can come together, for example, and start expressing 
you know, what they're feeling, how their lives have changed and, and develop a sort of a solidarity with each other and, and, and try to support mm-hmm. with each other. And those conversations are incredibly rich and incredibly, um, sometimes incredibly painful, but, you know, th- they can go in all kinds of ways. As an organization, we're trying to work out you know, what is the best way that we can convey some of what we're hearing and our groups to the world? Um, we're, a, we're a young organization. RTI is going to be four in April. So it's, it's you know, we're on this journey and we're trying to work out how to amplify what we do around the world. Um, and one of the ways that we're doing that as an organization is, bringing refugees into the work that we're doing. So as, a, as an organization, we co-create and deliver our programs with the refugees. So that means that my team is made up of, you know, members of the community, that we consult parents before, you know, we develop anything, any interventions, that we take into account tradition, religion, culture, and we make sure that there is space for people to draw strength from whatever they need. You know, it's 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 we're not trying to force a particular shape um, onto these communities. We create a, an opportunity where they can come together and do that themselves. Um, and looking to the future, that's what I'm really hoping that we can do as an organization is to really bring out the complexity of the refugee experience into the public discourse and mm-hmm. help everyone understand better how difficult and complicated the experience of displacement is and what we can do as a global community to better address the needs of those who are affected by it. Okay. That leads me to kind of this this framing or better understanding of what it means to be a refugee in the context of having a sense of community and having a sense of belonging with others that feel the same sort of things that you're feeling, right? And in that process, there's healing. And in the process that knowing that you're not alone and in voicing the things that you've experienced, having that resonate with people in your group, in your community, there's real healing in that. There's sincere healing in that. And I, and I speak to you from a place of having lived in Afghanistan for three years as a combat interpreter and then coming back to the United States and seeing the difference between a collectivist sort of culture that happens in the military in the context of a collectivist culture in Afghanistan and then having those people come back to the United States, which I would argue is an extremely individualistic culture and finding that sense of loneliness being the one of the main reasons of PTSD. And so are you seeing that? Are you, are you seeing that there's a lot of healing in the context of having these collectivist communities that you're providing in the work that you do? Absolutely. The main value that underpins all of our work is connection, is to restoring those connections and restoring those relationships that were lost. Um, A lot of the refugees that we work with come from communities that, as you said, they work together. So, you know, nobody in Afghanistan raises a child on their own. You know, I was raised by 20 different people, you know, my grandmother, my aunts, my uncles, and, you know, it's, it's one, just my parents, right? And so 
when you move as a young family to Europe, you lose all of that support. And that on top of everything else that you're going through, that just on its own can be a devastating event. And so bringing people together to connect, to recognize the similarity of their experiences, but also to recognize the resourcefulness that refugees have. So, for example, one of the things that we see a lot in our groups is that, you know, Parents share what's working for them and just, you know, they are the experts um, in, in, in how to deal with this, right? Because they're the ones living in a refugee camp without very much at all and they're raising a family in that context. So there's a lot that connecting people can do. And one of the main things that we try and encourage and nurture in the context of our work is healing, is to through the connection to another person or to another family is to encourage people to trust again. Um, you know, if your community suddenly was divided in half and one half went on one side of the war and the other half took the other side, it fractures people's faith and trust and that sense of togetherness. You know, and that in itself is very healing. It's if you start to trust other people, uh, if you start to count on other people, you know, you start to kind of say, look, I'm having a really bad day, but there's someone um, on the other side of the camp that I can go and talk to. So I think not just in the context of refugees, but as a species, if we don't pull together and connect and recognize that whether we choose to do that intentionally or not, we are interconnected and our fates are bound with each other, you know, we're not going to survive. Uh, I think it's the basis of survival um, to connect and to support each other. And in the context of the refugee camps, that's the basis of healing and resilience. I think that's absolutely true. And you know, what's interesting is in that connectivity, it's the thing that keeps people going. I'm convinced um, I've spent a lot of time these days thinking about the, the importance of sacrifice and the importance of sacrifice as it pertains to the overall well-being of the group at hand. So as a, as a fellow Afghan, and there are other collectivist cultures that do this and that speak like this and have language that literally frames this sense of identity as it pertains to sacrifice. What's interesting about sacrifice is that there's real goodness in it. And I don't mean to say like sacrifice without getting anything in return. I don't mean a complete giving of oneself without anything in return. I mean to say there's goodness in sacrifice in the sense that there is something intrinsic about us as humans that makes us feel good to give, like sincerely give. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense for a mother to have a child. It doesn't make sense for parents to have children. You know, like you think to yourself, evolutionarily, what does a child give to you when it's young? It cries, it screams, it takes, it takes your sleep away from you, takes all these things away from you <laughs> for the longest time. But then all of a sudden you like, you know, you'll have conversations, honest conversations with friends and family who have kids and they'll say it's the best thing that's ever happened in their lives. And it's something they want to continue to give to and for. And... Again, I'm thinking from a perspective of like, you know, return on investment. It's interesting because kids or things that you give to, they may never give something back to you until much later, but nonetheless, we continue to give. And in that process, I feel like 
Sacrifice is this thing that makes us really feel alive and it really brings us together. And, um, and I find that refugees that come to the United States, at least here that I interact with, they talk about how much they've given to the struggle. They talk about how much they've given for a better tomorrow. And it's that, that idea of sacrifice and prolonged sense of getting that really helps people get by. Do you find that to be the, the case in your, in your work too? It's interesting. As I was hearing you describe sacrifice, the way that I see what you were describing to me is this idea of service. And that's definitely something that I feel incredibly passionate about. And I think you're right. And a lot of the cultures, there are a lot of cultures in the world where service is an essential part of people's identity. Because I think sometimes when we talk about sacrifice, people see it as a sort of a negative thing, like what you said, which is, you know, you give too much of yourself away and you maybe forego certain things because you're, you're, you're doing the sacrifice. I think of service as, as, as something that it very much goes both ways. So, you know, service to a community, to a purpose, to a cause can really support something good in the world, uh, can really support nurturing something, can really support healing. But it also really gives us meaning and gives us um, what we need to kind of carry on and push ourselves and to elevate ourselves uh, above the conditions that we're in as, as human beings. So for sure, I think that's one way that you can, that one way you can transform yourself from these horrible experiences is that you embrace the concept and the idea of service to your community or, or, or to something. And that for me personally, that's definitely something that I think saved my life because, you know, you can, when you see so, the worst of humanity, when you see the worst that we have to offer, you need something to be able to hold on to. You need, you need to be tethered to something. And the mm -hmm. thing that definitely gives me that sort of support is this idea of service um, and, and being able to do something mm. for a community or for a cause. Oh, that's a wonderful explanation. Yeah, service is, is a wonderful way to kind of accentuate this idea of sacrifice in a positive light. So thank you for that. Can you help me understand in these moments of darkness, you find light, okay? Not all the time. So, <laughs> yeah, I know, I know it's hard, it's hard. How did you get into this line of work? You know, what was the thing in your life that made you really deeply curious about thinking about these sorts of issues that made you essentially take action that brought you to where you are today. Um, yeah. How'd you get to where you are? Well, I was born in Afghanistan and I think that sort of serves as almost 80% of the explanation. I was born in a country where there has been a 40 year devastation, 40 years of war and conflict. And you know, I think what we need as a country is find a way of healing, um, find a way of coming together because this assault on Afghan psyche for as long as it has been going on has damaged the collective capacity in a way that I don't think anyone understands. Um, so it's really important to think about how do you come together after this 
sort of an assault? Um, how do you create cohesion? How do you create trust again? How do you nurture hope in a place where people are genuinely hopeless? Uh, or they can be. I, I don't want to say everyone in Afghanistan is hopeless because I'm sure that's not true. But where hopelessness can, you know, is part of uh, your life. And so I really thought when I was younger about what is the best way that I can help this, you know. And so I went through lots of different options. You know, I thought, you know, I'll be a journalist. You know, I'll, I'll go and report on what's happening. But what I discovered is that I can't, I'm, I'm not a, someone who can witness. I have to get involved. You know, I have to be, if something's happening in front of me, I couldn't just stand there and write about it. I, I would have to try mm -hmm. and do something. So that idea quickly sort of dissipated. Um, and then the thing that came to me was education. I really wanted to think about how do you educate, how do you bring knowledge and skills to a country like Afghanistan. And through the work that I've done in the last 10 years, I came to recognize it's actually really difficult to bring education if you don't address emotional and psychological impact of the war. And so... That's how I came into this work. Um, it's also my own personal experience of seeing my family go through first the war, then years of displacement, and then trying to integrate into a completely new country and all the pain that that involves. You know, I think one of the most painful things for immigrant families is that you come in with your children and as your children grow up, there's a necessarily big gap that starts to develop between you and children because, you know, they start to adapt to this new culture. They start to have a different identity. They start to speak a different language, you know. My family's diary speaking, but, you know, the language I speak most of the time is English now. And that's a really painful thing to go through. And so those experiences as well kind of showed me that, you know, even when you're in a place like the UK and you're safe, as in that existential threat that you were running away from has disappeared, there is a lot to process. There's a lot that you're still dealing with. Um, and that's what working with trauma is all about, is to kind of help people confront what they've been through and try and make sense of it and then try and develop resilience through it. Yeah, gosh. Um, hearing you talk about your experience and how you got interested in this line of work uh, makes me think about my life in a reflective sort of way. And I'm in the process of writing about my memoir and what it means or what it meant to come to the United States. And my family, um, we didn't come to a big metropolitan city like New York or Washington, D.C. My family came to a small college town called Carlisle, which is in the state of Pennsylvania. And uh, there was very little diversity and um, people didn't know what it meant to be Afghan. In fact, many people thought uh, to be Afghan meant to be Sicilian. And so every place that we went to, people kind of <laughs> made us lasagna thinking it would be okay. <laughs> but anyway, that's a different story. But what's interesting about that, I mean, there are moments of comedic relief, but while you're in it, it's incredibly difficult. And so... What I'm, really, what I'm really thinking about now is the fact that immigrants that come to the West, who've been through so much trauma, who have literally lost everything, and they're in a place where they're trying to recreate a semblance of home, not home, a semblance of home, is 
how quite literally they don't even have the language to process the new life in which they have. And so our parents in many ways, I think, quite literally weren't able to cognitively process with the language that they had at hand, what was going on, right? Like quite literally words like trauma, words like PTSD, words like the ability to heal, this isn't part of the language in which immigrants essentially have, at least in my experience. I'm sure that's the kind of work that you're doing, but it's interesting just to not even have the, 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 the framework of language to understand what you're going through. And so in my experience with my parents, I know that's something that they weren't even able to, to get to. Like that, they didn't even have a starting point to kind of process what they were going through. You know? Something that I think many Afghans listening to this podcast will identify with is that if you call an aunt or an uncle and you say, how are you, you know, the first kind of answer, the sort of default answer that I hear is that I'm in pain, you know, something hurts, there's always something is going on with their physical health, right? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I've always, you know, when I was growing up, I sort of thought, this is so weird. Why is everyone that I know constantly experiencing these aches and pains and discomfort and all of this stuff, you know? And, and I, I remember going to my aunt's house and she would, she would ask me to sort of massage her legs and she'd be, you know, she'd say like, oh, you know, it, it just really like I'm in so much pain all the time. And as I've grown older, I sort of understand that actually what I think part of that is that, like you said, if you don't have the language to express your feelings and the difficulties that you've experienced and the trauma that you've experienced, pain manifests in lots of other ways. And I think that's one of the ways that the people I know, the Afghans that I know, my own people in my family express the pain that they've been through. So it is there, and I and I I don't I don't know about your family, but for example, with mine, there's always an undercurrent of this grief that has been there their whole lives. You know, the grief of losing their language, the grief of you know having a friend that they were super close to, and then the war happened and they lost that friend. The grief of having to you know, let go of these futures that they imagined. And, I, you know, I don't think, I don't know anyone that I've worked with or anyone from my own family and my own community who whose aspiration when they were growing up was to end up in America or to, in Germany. You know, th- this was not what they were planning. My parents were planning to live their entire lives in Afghanistan. <laughs> that's what they wanted to do. Because I think that's one of the biggest myths about refugees is that people just, you know, want to end up in Germany. That's not true. You know, people leave um, because they're facing this threat. And so coming to terms with all of that is super difficult. And I think it takes your entire life. And I don't think you ever really come to terms with it in the sense that, you know, it doesn't impact your life. I think what you can do if you have the support and the community and the, what you need is to manage it and to enable those experiences to be transformative rather than damaging. No, I think that's right. Gosh, there's so much to unpack there. There's so much that you just shared. So you said something like, there's something that people don't realize is that people leave their home countries not because they want to, but because they have to, right? And I kind of want to frame this, this part of the conversation under, under, under the idea of hope. 
And so what are you learning or what have, what have people have said in terms of like the level of hopelessness that exists when they had to make the decision to leave places like Syria, Afghanistan, Somalia, Sudan, to embark on a journey that they don't know what will bring for them and to them. But the journey nonetheless is all about loss. There's so much loss that's existing in their lives such that they've come to this frontier where they have to decide between what their reality is and then the unknown. And so what I find to be fascinating is talking to people who have made that decision and have made it to a safer place is this idea of the thought process that goes through their minds of, well, we can't continue to live here in this war zone. Now it's time. It's time to embark on a journey of the unknown that is literally littered with loss. And so for me, that's something I don't, I don't know if that's part of the actual discourse or the conversation, but I think it needs to be, you know? You know, the way that people make those kind of decisions isn't very, um, you know, I, th- I think it's really important to contextualize that and where and how those decisions are made. So my parents didn't spend a very long time contemplating this. You know, I think in the back of their minds, there was always this possibility that we will probably leave home. But there, I think the sense of hope that you're talking about and my experience was always to be able to stay. You know, that was their kind of hope. They wanted the war to end. They wanted to be able to stay where they were. I think... The people that I work with and my own experience is that the decision to leave often happens under extraordinary circumstances. And it's, you know, it's that moment where you realize I cannot stay here because if I do, I might lose my child. And so I'm just going to react. You know, human beings are, we've evolved to survive. You know, that is our most basic, strongest instinct is to survive. And so once that takes over, I think people just kind of do everything they can to get away from that sort of existential danger. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, when when, when I talk to people that have done that, often those moments of, you know, packing your stuff and leaving it's 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 very surreal and fragmented when they describe it because it, it is when you kind of your instinct takes over and you're just running from something and i think it's only later especially when you've settled right so like i think that a lot a lot of the communities that we're working with are still not processing that because greece is not their final destination i think once you arrive to the place that you're going to be living that's when you stop processing. That's when you kind of confront all of that. And often that's one of the hardest times for refugees is when the survival instinct, when the adrenaline that kept them going dissipates and they really have to confront the reality of where, you know, of their circumstances. Let's talk about this in the framing of understanding what's going on politically right now really quickly in in Europe, if we could. You said that um, refugees, their final destination isn't Greece, it's somewhere probably like Denmark, countries in Scandinavia, maybe Germany, maybe the UK. And so as a European with Afghan roots, who's now working in this space, who's traversing all of Europe probably and understanding what's going on, what are the implications of the, of the refugee crisis? What's going on? Is it the reason why Brexit has happened? I mean, what, what do we need to know? Like what's going on? 
oh dear, who knows why Brexit happened? You know, I, I'm going to avoid the Brexit route if that's okay with you because it's both. That's right. <laughs> it's, because a lot of people, it's, it's, it's the reason I say it's because, <laughs> the reason I bring it up is because, you know, there's a huge rise in populist movements now because of xenophobia mm. in Europe and in the United States. Um, and so, and so I ask because it's been framed that way in the readings that I've done and the people that I've talked to. So we can totally avoid it. But I ask because it's, you know, there's an influx of people, but then what is that? What are the implications of that in the countries in which people are, are seeking to go to, right? I think there are a couple of dynamics at play in the world at the moment, which are impacting each other and compounding some of the um, stress and fears that everyone feels globally. So one is, um, I think, this rise of inequality and this pressure that communities feel all over the world uh, because in every single developed country, and I think in other parts of the world, but in the US, Europe, Australia, all these different countries, there is a growing and significant gap between the rich and the rest of the country, the rest of society. And that is a really difficult thing to manage because there's a lot of other things that are going on alongside that. So, you know, work is disappearing because we are becoming more and more efficient. So whereas before we had all these factories and people could get jobs, you know, doing something, that's no longer available to a lot of communities around the world. And I think the U.S. is a prime example of how that um, lack of access to the labor market or labor market that just doesn't exist anymore. I mean, I think that's something that people don't really talk about is as if these jobs just kind of went to people of color. It didn't. A lot of these jobs have just disappeared. So I think that's one part of it. And the other part is that you have this massive global crisis, which is climate change. So it's driving people from the South northwards because we have... Uh, the planet has sustained the kind of damage that is now impacting people's daily lives everywhere. We feel it less so in the North. We will feel it more and more. And I think as a result of these factors, because politicians in Europe and the US and other countries aren't confronting these problems because they're complex and they're difficult, the scapegoat is predictably people of color, immigrant communities, uh, poor communities. So, you know, and so that's where the political rhetoric has given rise to these populist movements and to a lot of fascist movements in Europe at the moment, which is so frightening because it's much easier to say so. In the run-up to Brexit, it was much easier for the Brexit, for the Leave campaign to kind of point posters of Syrian refugees and say to communities that are struggling to say these people are the reason that you're not getting what you're supposed to get then to talk about the fact that there is massive inequality in the UK jobs are disappearing we have defunded a public public services which provided social security to people the education system is not supporting people to access the kind of jobs that do exist. And these are complex government policies that we need to be able to deal with. Instead of doing that, we're pointing at refugees and immigrants who come from countries 
that have been at war because of intervention from US, from UK, from all these different countries. People that are being killed by weapons that are made in these countries and sold to countries that are at war. And so it, there is, this is what, when, when I was talking earlier about connect, connectivity, that's a really important thing to understand because all of these different things, the populism in Europe, the war in Afghanistan, inequality, refugees, all of these things are inextricably tied together. And until our leaders have the insight, the courage and the intelligence to actually confront the issues as they are, we're not going to be rid of fascism. That's not going to happen because we need to meet these things head on. Yeah, I have a dear friend of mine whose name is uh, Masood Hussein. He was a Pulitzer Prize uh, winning photographer. And um, he said something that really resonates to what you're speaking to is um, he said the whole world is connected like a human body. And if one part of the human body hurts, then the entire body feels it. And it's absolutely true. And so, gosh, there's so much to say about what you just kind of explained. And, and I'm not sure if the political system, given the amount that like it's four years in time span or that the fact that it's so short term is going to lend itself to deal with these complex long-term problems that you've described. It's going to take somebody courageous and honest to essentially be able to essentially address what's going on. But again, you know, these politicians are catering to our emotions, catering to people's emotions, and that's what's getting them votes. And it's sad because, you know, travel bans and building walls are all symptoms of the problem. They're not the causes which you've explained. And that's exactly. the most frustrating part about it. Exactly. And I think we're spending money on things that will just make things worse. I think, you know, I sort of think about the refugee crisis as this is something that's going to keep on happening. And I think we have a choice in, in how we're going to manage it. I think as climate change continues to impact the world, we're going to see more and more climate refugees. Right now, there is 450 million children living in conflict zones. At some point, some of those children, my, as minors even, because there's a lot of unaccompanied children that leave Afghanistan, Syria, all these countries, will want to have some sort of safety. And why shouldn't they have the right to try and save their lives, you know? Mm -hmm. There, you know, we've never had so many people on the move. I think that this year it reached 70 million, 70 million people are on the move. And so we can't, this is not something that you can sweep under the carpet and it's not something that you can paint over with populist rhetoric. That's not going to solve, you know, you can say America first, you can say Britain for the British. It's just not going to work. Aside from the fact that these are xenophobic, you know, protectionist ways of talking about mm -hmm. things, they also don't work. I mean, they're just, it, it's, it's, it's not a workable solution. Mm -hmm. So why, why invest in things that you know is not going to solve the problem, but actually is going to make it worse? Yeah, that's definitely what's missing in the global debate about refugees is that... Um uh, Zadlash, I want to be respectful of your time here. And so I'd, I'd love to kind of do uh, a one final question before we kind of get into a rapid fire session. I like to go through is, um, you know, given the work that you've done and your upbringing and, you know, what it means to be an immigrant in a place like the UK and then going and helping those that are literally homeless, what does your work teach you about what it means to be human? I think to be human is to be optimistic. Um, so earlier you asked me about, you know, do you 
find, you know, finding light in very dark places. And I don't find that all the time. I think there are days where it's just dark um, and it's, and you have to contend with that. But I think we are programmed to be optimistic about the future. So what I see in the most difficult places that I've worked at is that people still dream and they have aspirations and they want to do things, even if their circumstances signal that they're, this is never going to happen. You know, I, I, we work with young people and they have dreams of being rappers. They have dreams of being doctors. They have dreams of, you know, standing for office somewhere. And they're living in a refugee camp. And I think that is very much human, you know. I think it's kind of um, maintaining that sense of optimism, even when mm -hmm. everything tells you otherwise that's great that's really enlightening um i think that's important to remember as we go forward okay so last uh, i'd love to ask you a couple quick questions mm -hmm. so i like to call this the rapid fire session of my podcast okay mm -hmm. so kind of just share the first thing that comes to your mind you ready uh -huh. okay if you had one superpower what would it be um <laughs> that's a really hard question <laughs> what my superpower would be uh, to read people's minds. Of course, of course, of course, given your line of work. Okay. Um, what's one beneficial experience that you've had that you wish to never experience again? That's also really difficult. Um, I would say being a refugee. Um, that's been the most kind of the most significant thing that's ever happened to me. But I don't want to experience that again. Which is why you're in the line of work that you're in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. What time period would you like to spend one day in and why? I would love to be in Afghanistan before the war started. I would love to take a trip to Karga and to mm -hmm. have a picnic on by the water. Mm -hmm. I'd love mm -hmm. to see the Buddhas of Bamiyan before they were destroyed. Um, I'd love to do, you know, I spend quite a lot of time in festivals in the UK and I would meet all these different people that talked about you know going through Afghanistan in the 60s and the 70s and for pretty much every single person that I spoke to that did the sort of the route the Silk Road route Afghanistan was their favorite place and so I really really wish if I could do that is to go back to that time and to experience my country at a time of peace. No, I like that answer. Okay, Zalash, I just want to thank you for your time today. And I want to thank you for your willingness to serve and continuing serving those that are most um, vulnerable because your work matters. And I wish you success going forward. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. I really enjoyed having this conversation. Likewise. Thank you so much. Thank you. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and leave a review. You can also email me with feedback at storiesoftransformationpodcast at gmail.com. You can also join the conversation and find others like you by following us on Instagram at stories underscore of underscore transformation and on Facebook, Stories Transformation. You can find all this information on my website as well, www.baktashahadi.com. That's B-A-K-T-A-S-H. A-H-A-D-I dot com. <laughs>